Amen. Sing to the Lord. Great. I want to share with you this morning in our continuing series on the Master's morality, and I know you've had a great time. I was sorry I couldn't be here uh, Wednesday and Friday of last week. I, I didn't want to miss uh, Russ Moore, and I didn't want to miss Dewey Bertolini. I regret that I was unable to be here, but I'm going to get the tapes and, and listen because I really want to be a part of all of that. And um, when I was in seminary, I always heard that you were supposed to have three points in a sermon. They drilled that into our heads. And I understand Dewey had ten. And, um, but then he teaches the class here, doesn't he, on preaching? Doesn't he teach that class? So I originally only had three points this morning, but I've, I spent till one o'clock last night adjusting this, and now I have ten, Dewey. And uh, so this is going to be the Dewey Bertolini Memorial Sermon. Uh, today, and I, I just hope you appreciate it for the effort that I've gone through to come up with 10 points. Now, the 10 points that I have, I want to call principles for gray areas. Principles for gray areas. Now, you might wonder what I mean by gray areas. Some things in uh, the Christian life and some things in the Word of God are clearly black and white. That is, they are right or wrong. And we really don't have a lot of doubt about those things. You read the Bible, you know what's right, you know what's wrong. We could sum up the things that are right and wrong in the Ten Commandments, couldn't we? Basically, we know it's wrong to lie and cheat and covet and steal and to take God's name in vain and worship other gods and make idols and uh, dishonor your parents and so forth and so on. There are very clearly given right and wrong things in Scripture. Biblical uh, revelation leaves little doubt about those kinds of things. If you read the New Testament and read the letters of the Apostle Paul, he'll give you periodically long lists of things that are unacceptable. You can come, for example, to uh, Galatians, and you will read in Galatians about the works of the flesh that are unacceptable to God, and then you read about the works of the Spirit that are acceptable to God, the fruit of the Spirit. So we're pretty clear on what is right and what is wrong in terms of biblical specifics. And it's not my intention today to talk about that. But it is my intention to talk about things that in and of themselves are neither right or wrong. I mean, just basically on the surface. They are things in and of themselves that are non-moral things. Let me give you some illustrations of that. For example, food. Now, in general, we understand that food is okay. God made food for us to survive. But there are some people who think certain kinds of food are wrong. You might not know it, but there are kosher Christians. There really are. There are people today who are advocating a new Judaism within Christianity, and when Jewish people are coming to Christ in some of these quote-unquote messianic synagogues, they're telling them they have to maintain an Old Testament diet so they can't eat pork and so forth and so on. There are some people in the Roman Catholic Church who know the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way and would refrain from eating meat on Friday because they believe there are restrictions laid upon them relative to certain dietary laws. And there are sort of small groups here and there who may have some quirks about diet that they themselves have developed. I don't know if you realize it, but among the Seventh-day Adventists, for example, there are both those who hope in their own works for salvation and those who hope in Jesus Christ for salvation. It's been my experience that some Seventh-day Adventists are depending on the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. They're a new movement in the Seventh-day Adventist church. They no longer adhere to the writings of Ellen uh, G. White as if they are the revelation of God and they're sort of a new wave of people who really know Christ. Even though some of them are Christians, they still adhere very tightly to the dietary laws of their tradition. 
They are vegetarian. If you are in the hospital, in the Glendale Adventist Hospital, you'll get walnut burgers and veggie burgers and all that kind of stuff. And you won't get any coffee. You won't get any tea. And those kinds of things are residual dietary laws that they somehow have brought out of Judaism into their kind of Christianity. Then there's the matter of drink. There are some people who think it's a sin to drink. And by that, I mean anything with any alcohol in it at all. They think it's a sin to drink a small glass of beer. I mean, if you buy a can of beer to wash your hair and any drips in your mouth, you've committed a sin. Uh, they believe that it's a sin if you happen to be in the garden in Jerusalem and you're having communion and the only thing they serve in the garden tomb for the communion there is wine. And you get a little tiny thing of wine. And when I've been there, I've seen people who refrain from taking communion in the garden in Jerusalem because it's real wine. And they believe it's a sin to let that touch their pure lips. To some people, recreation is a sin. I have a friend who's a medical doctor who thinks sports in itself and recreation is basically a sin. In fact, he would say that what Paul said to Timothy, bodily exercise profits little, uh, means it profits so little you ought not to even do it. But you ought to exercise yourself to godliness. And he gives a great speech about how much time is wasted in athletic endeavor and bodily exercise and so forth and so on when we ought to be spending all our time exercising our spiritual muscles. So for some people, uh, to attend a football game where people scream and yell and uh, uh, get uh, a little bit out of their normal mode of personality expression, put it mildly, that's to engage in loss of self-control and therefore it's sin. There are some people who don't own a television. In fact, they usually pride themselves on the fact they don't own a television if it isn't economic, and it usually isn't. And they say we don't have a television because television is sinful. There are some people who think movies are sinful, and if there's 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter celluloid going through a projector, that's a sin. I don't know whether the sin is in the light, the machine, or on the film, but they would tell us that movies in general are sinful. In fact, when when first Christian movies were being made, the first Christian movies, there were many churches that wouldn't show them because they believed that film was an agent of the enemy. There are some people, and I was raised in an environment like this, that believe any activity on Sunday is wrong. Al Martin spoke in chapel last week. He is a Sabbatarian. You didn't know that because he didn't bring that up, but he believes in the maintenance of the Sabbath as it was maintained in the Old Testament. And so there are certain circumscriptions that he adheres to on the Sabbath and will not indulge himself in certain things. For some people, Sunday is a day when they will not do anything other than worship the Lord or sleep, which they also feel to be very spiritual. There are some people who believe that playing cards is evil in and of itself, and particularly the joker or the jack. I don't know why, because I don't know anything about cards. There are some people who believe that's a sin to play cards. There are some people who would say it's a sin to play other kinds of games, and I've known about a list of sinful games when I was young. Some people think it is a sin to take a bunch of weeds, stick them in a piece of paper, shove it in your mouth, and set it on fire, and then blow smoke through your nose. They feel that is a sin to do that. But the Bible doesn't say that. Some people think it's a sin to have your hair over your ears. Some people think it's a sin to have long hair if you're a man. Some people think it's a sin for a girl to have a crew cut. You've seen girls with crew cuts, haven't you, recently? Some of those weird deals. Some people think... Uh, <laughs> Some people think it is a sin uh, to have certain style of clothing, that in order to be spiritual, you should have, uh, um, you should dress in a, an IBM fashion. You should have a pinstripe suit and thick-soled wingtips. 
And that's really spiritual. Bill Gothard does that. That's got to be spiritual. Some people think that um, some people think that if you wear a certain style of jewelry, you're not spiritual. Some people feel if you wear no jewelry, you're spiritual. Some people feel if you wear makeup, you're unspiritual. There are churches which you could not enter, evangelical churches. You couldn't get in the door if you had lipstick on. They would not allow you in the place. And there are other churches that wouldn't allow you in if you didn't have lipstick on. They would think you weren't well or something. There are some people who would tell us that musical styles are in and of themselves evil, that jazz is evil, that uh, when you play a drum, that's evil. I have been uh, castigated by the church in the San Fernando Valley because we had a guitar in our service some years ago, and a guitar, everyone knows, is the agent of Satan. And so there are, there are those who believe certain musical styles are evil, and they tell us that the only pure music is classical, and if they really knew the truth, if you study the line, the storyline in opera, or you study the background of classical music, uh, that which has words, you will find some of the most vile and evil expression in classical music anywhere in music to rival even the music of the rock generation in some cases. And many of the people who wrote classical music were womanizers, homosexuals, etc., etc., etc. But some people still feel certain music styles are in and of themselves evil. Now, I'm not arguing against all of these. I grew up in an environment when I was a student back east where mixed bathing was evil. Uh, for a girl to put on a bathing suit, any kind of bathing suit, even if it went to her knees and be seen by a boy, was in and of itself sinful. She should be properly draped. In fact, it was a sin if your skirt was not two inches below your knees because basically female knees are in and of themselves sinful. Some more sinful than others. <laughs> But um, did we say something that convicted you, Paul? Or something? <laughs> Sorry about that. <clears throat> anyway, you understand what I'm driving at, folks? All right, these are areas, these are areas which the Bible does not speak about. You will not find in the Bible anything restricting your diet. In fact, in the New Testament, it says all things are to be received with thanksgiving. You will find in the Bible no direct and comprehensive prohibition against drinking things, even things which may contain some amount of alcohol, although drinking strong drink, that is, alcoholic beverages that are unmixed, I believe is strongly forbidden in Scripture. The wine which is allowed in Scripture was heavily mixed with water up to ten to one water. And most of the wine in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ came from a paste that was a non-alcoholic paste that was then diluted with water. The reason they drank that was because the water couldn't be purified and created certain problems health-wise, and so they drank the fruit of the vine more readily. But nonetheless, the Bible gives no prohibition wholesale against that. The Bible does not give a prohibition against recreation. It does not forbid television. It does not forbid movies, sports, Sunday activities, cards, games, smoking, Certain hairdos, it says nothing about clothing styles, music styles, mixed bathing, and a lot of other things. And it's interesting to me that there are always people in the church who want to make binding rules to apply to all of these things. And you may have come out of an environment where you had some of those rules. And this would fall into the category, in a sense, of Matthew 15, where Jesus said, you have substituted the traditions of men for the commandments of God. Now, what happens to a person when they grow up in an environment where people make these rules? I grew up in an environment where it was a sin to drink, where it was a sin to go to movies, where it was a sin to read a funny paper on a Sunday, 
with comics. It was a sin to do anything activity-wise on a Sunday. It was a sin to have a deck of cards in your house. It was a sin to smoke. It was a sin to have your hair long. It was a sin to wear worldly clothing styles. It was a sin to listen to certain music, and it was a sin to have a mixed bathing event. Now, I've experienced all of that kind of what I call traditional, as Joe Stowell called them, code ethics, where you systematize all human behavior. And the problem in that is you struggle because you don't know why it is a sin because you go to the Word of God and you can't find it there. And so as soon as you're out from under that structure, you begin to exercise yourself in those areas which were restricted but without justification. And I watch kids come out of an environment like that who only know it's wrong because everyone tells them it's wrong. And all they want to do is go out and do it because they can't find any legitimate support for its wrongness in the Word of God. And so that's a self-justifying thing. Let's live it up. After all, these aren't biblical issues anyway. And also, one of the things that's frightening about this, as Joe Stoll pointed out in Code Ethics, is you never know what's right unless somebody's around to tell you. Somebody has to pontificate. Somebody has to play pope and speak ex cathedra and say this is a sin because you don't have the criteria to make that evaluation. Now, I don't want you to live under that kind of a system. I want you to know how to handle these things. I also want to tell you this before we go any further. I don't, I don't drink at all, and I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do. You know how the whole thing goes. But I don't, I don't smoke, and I don't drink, and, and I'm very careful about these other things, and I have my hair done in a way that's not bizarre. No comments. And I try to dress in a conservative way, and I listen to music that I think is proper, and I'm cautious about the fact that uh, I want to be in a place where I can uh, do what is right in every environment. So there are some things that I have to consider that are in that list in my own life. But the thing that I want you to be able to do is to realize that many of these things have to do with our contemporary culture. I've been in a Bedouin tent. I've been in a Bedouin tent in the middle of the desert in the Middle East. I've been in there with a whole bunch of Bedouins sitting on the floor, and they were serving us tea. And I looked at that tea, and something was growing in my tea. Now, I did not drink that. I abstained. There was a reason for that. But I noticed in that environment that if I were living in that environment, all of my taboos would be irrelevant. Absolutely irrelevant. Because things like TV and sports and movies and Sunday activities and hairstyles and clothing styles and music styles and cards and games and mixed bathing are absolutely foreign to that entire culture. So if I were to go in there as a missionary and say, all right, ladies and gentlemen, here are the rules of the Christian life. No drinking. Now, all they've got is what they've got. And they don't have a refrigerator. So if they've got wine they got a problem because they can't keep it from fermenting. Now, I might want to say you need to mix that with water so you're not going to get intoxicated. Now, if I said, now, ladies, you're going to have to dress modestly, I mean, you can't even tell who a lady is because she's under this entire pile of blankets. And I'm talking the Middle East in the summer. That's irrelevant. And hair, why, they don't even have barbers. And I don't know what their hair looks like. It's never visible. And music, I mean, their music is all the same. I know, you know, that's what? 
They don't have a radio. They don't have a record player. They don't have anything. So what am I going to tell them when I tell them about Christian living? And what am I going to tell them when I tell them about how to respond to things that are not in and of themselves moral? What I have to do is give them what? Principles. Principles. Not overly defined cultural traditions. And that's what I want to give you. And as I said earlier, in deference to Dewey, I have ten of them. Ten principles. And they really boil down to ten questions. And this is how you know whether something is is right or wrong for you as you approach it. Okay? These are ten questions you ask in the face of non-moral issues. Okay? And I don't, I don't think we're going to be able to finish all ten of them today, if I know me at all. We'll try to get through the first one to start with. Number one, will it be spiritually profitable? Will it be spiritually profitable? That's the question I want to ask. I approach something and I ask myself the question, will it be spiritually profitable? Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and I'm going to take you through several scriptures that lay these principles down so that you'll understand where to identify them. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. And I want to just, if I might, sort of pull this out of the context here in which Paul is talking about morality. He says in verse 12, all things are lawful. Now, let me say something about that statement. All things are lawful is a true statement if you qualify the all things. Is murder lawful? No. Is adultery lawful? No. Is fornication lawful? No. Is lying lawful? No. Is stealing lawful? No. Is cursing God lawful? No. So what we want to say is that all things that are lawful are lawful. Anything that is not unlawful is lawful. Anything in and of itself that is not a moral issue is lawful. It's permissible. And so we would have to say that a TV in and of itself is not forbidden in the Bible. It's not an evil thing. It's a box full of wires and wood or plastic or whatever and glass and you plug it into the wall and electricity goes through it and there's nothing moral about any of that. And weeds put in paper and stuck in your mouth and lit on fire have no morality. And grape juice has no morality. And a game has no morality. And a card in your hand has no morality. And film running through a projector has no morality. So anything that is not unlawful is in and of itself lawful. But then Paul responds with this statement. But all things are not profitable. All things are not profitable. The word is sum ferro, and you have a, a preposition sum, which means together. It basically means to bring together, which means to be to your advantage, to be to your advantage. So you ask yourself the first question, will this be to my advantage? Well, what advantage is he talking about? Advantage in what dimension? Spiritual advantage. Is this to my spiritual advantage? Is this going to profit me spiritually? That's a fair question to ask in regard to anything. Is it going to profit me spiritually? I'm going to go to a movie. Is it going to profit me spiritually? That's the question I ask first. I'm going to turn on my television. Will this be to my spiritual profit? Remember this, that I'm answerable to God for the accountability of my time, right? For every idle word and all the use of my time and energy. So I ask myself the question, is this going to bring to me spiritual profit? Will it directly assist my spirituality as opposed to my carnality? 
Will it cultivate within me godliness? It's a basic question. And you learn to ask yourself that question. All things not forbidden by God are lawful, but will they be to my spiritual advantage? Or on the other hand, will, if I do that, this thing tend to lead me into spiritual laziness or spiritual apathy or spiritual indifference? Or will it take me away from the things that are spiritual and kind of create in my mind a, a, a concern about things that are fleshy? I think something we don't think about but comes to mind often. I was talking to someone the other day and he said to me, you know the basic problem with my wife's spiritual life? I said, what is it? She won't get up in the morning, he said. She sleeps in every day. I can't get her out of bed. And I said, you think that's her basic spiritual problem? I do. Because I know it's not spiritually profitable to her to be undisciplined. Something like sleeping in can demonstrate the fact that you can't get a harness on your discipline. And the inability to deal with laziness is spiritually unprofitable. So you ask yourself the question, will sleeping in be to my spiritual profit? Let's call this principle expedience. Okay, I'm going to give you a word for each one. It starts with E. So let's call this one expedience. Is it really expedient? Is it really to my advantage? And after all, are you concerned about your advantage? Are you? Are you concerned about what's doing best for you? What's functioning to build you up? Sure. That brings me to the second one second question I ask is, will it build me up? Not only will it be to my spiritual advantage in this moment, but secondly, will it build me up? Will it move me along a path to spiritual development? Now go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 23. And Paul is still talking about this same concept in this verse, just a parallel verse to 1 Corinthians 6.12. Look what he says. Again, all things are lawful. That is, all things that are not unlawful are lawful. All things that God does not forbid are all right. They're lawful. But all things are not expedient or profitable or to my advantage, just as he said in chapter 6, verse 12. Then this, all things are lawful for me, but all things, what? Do not build up. So on the one hand, he says, I want that which is immediately profitable, and now I want that which is long-term going to build me up. So I ask myself the question about any gray area thing, will this build me up spiritually? The word edify is oikadameo. It basically means to build a house. We get the word domicile or domestic, the building up of a house. Only profitable things can build me up. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul says, Let all things be done for edification. Let all things be done to build us up. 2 Corinthians 12, 19, We do all things, dearly beloved, Paul says, for your edification, or for your edifying, it actually says. We do everything to build you up. We don't do anything that won't build you up. And by that, what I mean is, it, will it strengthen my spiritual muscles? Will it move me up the ladder of spiritual development, which means will it contribute, mark this, to the decreasing frequency of sin in my life and the increasing frequency of righteousness? That's the issue. Will it build me up? Look back at chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians while we're in this section, and I'll give you another illustration of this principle. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 Speaking of his own personal perspective in ministry, verse 24 says, Don't you know that they who run in a race 
all run, everybody runs, but one receives the prize. So run that you may what? That you may win or obtain. Now, the whole point in the race, Paul says, is to win. So what I want to do in my spiritual life, mark this, is to do those things that help me what? Win. That which is immediately profitable to me and that which long term sustains me in the race to bring me to victory. That's my desire. And every man, and the word here is an athletic word, I think it's athleo, every man that strives or competes in athletics is moderate in all things. What does it mean? It means he controls his life. He disciplines his life. I mean, an undisciplined person will not succeed in athletics at any other than a mediocre level. I mean, the difference between an average athlete and a great athlete may be nothing more than commitment to the process of discipline. So he says this, if you're going to compete in athletics, you have to be moderate. You have to control things. You have to be disciplined. And the world does it to obtain a corruptible crown, and we do it to obtain what? An incorruptible one. So what I have to ask myself then, will this build me up? What do you mean by that? Will it move me along the path of spiritual maturity? where there is the increasing frequency of righteousness and the decreasing frequency of sin. Will it bring me to win the victory in the race that I run? And am I disciplining myself so that someday I will receive that crown the Lord gives to those who run as they ought to run? Now, in verse 27, he says, In order to accomplish this, I have to control my body. I literally bring it into subjection. Uh, I buffet my body. I... I have to fight my body. I, I have to give it a black eye is a, is a word that is used in reference to this. I have to make it my slave. Now, if you want to live by bodily appetites, then you're going to live in a way that dishonors God. If you want to learn to control your body, like First Thessalonians talks about in chapter 4, where it says, let every man possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. I believe vessel there has to do with the body. We are to control the body in sanctification and honor. So I ask myself the question, will this contribute to my positive strengthening? Now, there are many things that, for example, let's say that I'm an athlete and I'm training for something. I can look back to my athletic days in college and I wanted some things very badly. I wanted to obtain certain goals in my athletic career. In order to do that, there were certain things I had to say no to that in and of themselves were not wrong. Is that right? They weren't wrong. I mean, I, when I was running the sprints, for example, and I, I wanted to run well, there was no way that I could eat anything I wanted to eat. There was nothing wrong with the food I didn't eat in terms of its moral content, but there was something wrong in terms of my goals for my life. So that's a question that has to be asked. Will it build me up? Will it increase my spiritual strength? So let's call this principle edification. The first principle is expedience. The second principle is edification. Let me give you a third principle. And this follows along the same path. We're moving in sequence and overlap. Hebrews chapter 12. And we ask this question. Will it slow me down in the race? Now, we picked up the racial metaphor in 1 Corinthians 9. Let's follow it a little further. And ask the question, will it slow me down in the race? Do I need this? Do I really need to add this baggage to my life? I have an evening free. I could sit down and watch television. I could even watch responsible television if there is such a thing. I could watch uh, gorillas jumping around on KCET. 
PBS. I could watch Jacques Cousteau, who desperately needs a good meal. I could watch, I could watch, uh, I could watch somebody playing a game. I could watch a, people answering questions about uh, history on a game show and and uh, learn a little bit. I could watch responsible TV, so I'll take four hours and I'll sit there and watch TV. And then I have to ask myself the question, all right, I'm in a spiritual race. I've got these four hours. What am I going to do with these four hours to make me run faster to win the prize? Is this it? Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe I'm going to say, hey, I spent nine hours today poring over the books. I spent nine hours a day studying. I got a couple of A's on my test. I'm tired. My head hurts. I've got a headache, and I really need to sit down and relax. Well, God bless your relaxation. But if when you ask the question, the answer comes, I've done nothing but flake off for the last three weeks. Another four hours of flake off would be a spiritual disaster for me. Turn off that idiot box and contribute to something that isn't going to hold you down more in the race, but it's going to lighten your load. Now, see, that these are the questions you have to ask. Look at Hebrews 12. And this is a misunderstood verse, so let me see if I can't explain it to you a bit. Wherefore, he says, seeing we also are compassed about or surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, watch this one, every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, stop at that point for a moment. Would you notice there are two things you have to set aside? What are they? What are the two things in verse 1 you have to set aside? Sin and what? And wait. Now, we would conclude something very obvious. You don't have to be a Phi Beta Kappa to figure this out. If you're supposed to set aside sin and wait, then sin and wait are not the same thing. Did you get that? That's basic. Set aside sin, but also set aside weight. Well, you say, what in the world is weight if it isn't sin? Now, here we are in a race. The word race is agon, from which we get agony. It expresses the idea of, of tremendous, demanding, grueling effort. And we're to run this race with uh, endurance. Uh, this is not a sprint. This is a, this is a long-distance run. It reminds me when I ran the half mile for the first time in high school. I, it was a terrible thing for a coach to do to me. Because I was a sprinter and I ran the half mile like I ran the 100-yard dash. I was absolutely sensational for the first 120 yards. And then it was total disaster for about a lap and three quarters. But he's talking here about an enduring race. Now, if we're going to run the race effectively, he says you have to lay aside sin. We know that. We have to put sin aside. But this other thing really interests me. We have to lay aside weight. Now, here we are running this race. We're running the race of faith. There are many witnesses who tell us it's a great race to run. This is not a stadium with witnesses watching us. Don't get the idea that all the witnesses mentioned in chapter 11, all the heroes of faith are sitting in the bleachers of heaven looking down watching us run. That's ridiculous. They are not witnesses in a stadium. They are people who lived a life that witnessed to the validity of living by faith in God. That's a whole different thing. They are witnesses by their lives of the satisfaction and blessedness of living a life of faith. And so we then, too, want to run that race, which they witnessed was such a good race, and we want to lay aside the weight. Now, the word weight is ankas. It means bulk. It means bulk. It's an amoral term. It doesn't mean evil, and it doesn't mean good. It means bulk. Nobody in his right mind would run the 100-meter dash with a sweatsuit on. That would be absolutely ridiculous. 
I remember when a great uh, Russian uh, sprinter who had won a gold medal in the Olympics came to L.A. a couple of years after the Olympics to run in a, in a meet, and he was defeated by a couple of Americans. And when he was interviewed through an interpreter afterwards, he said he had gained too much weight. Now, is weight evil? No. Is it evil to have a little pot belly? No. It's not moral. Pot bellies are not moral. Praise God. But if you're going to run 100 meters, you better get rid of one. So you've got to ask yourself what it is you're after in life. You have to ask yourself what it is you desire. And the encumbrance, the oncost, the bulk is not sin. It's whatever weighs you down, diverts your priorities, takes your attention, sucks your energy, dampens your enthusiasm for the things of God, and retards the progress of your movement toward the goal. And some of that stuff just is bulk, isn't it? And you just got to get rid of it. I mean, there are people who like to work on a car. You see them, they're in your neighborhood. They have cars all over the place, don't they? On their lawn, on their driveway, in their garage. We got a guy on our street who has a garage. I think there are nine cars in his garage. That's not an exaggeration. I think there are nine cars, and I think there are nine cars outside his garage. And every time you go by the place, people are working on cars. Now, is it a sin to work on a car? It's not a sin. I don't even I don't think the guy's a Christian. I gotta find out, but I don't think he's a Christian. But I'll tell you something. The guy has got a lot of bulk. All his life is fiddling with cars. Now, if you're a Christian, you could say, well, there's nothing wrong with a car. Oh, yeah, it's like the lady who goes to the psychiatrist and, and she's, he says, why are you here? My husband sent me. Why did he send you? He thinks I'm crazy. Why does he think you're crazy? Because I like potato chips. Nothing wrong with that. I like potato chips. Oh, wonderful. Come to my house. My attic is full of them. Oh. Well, there's nothing wrong with potato chips, but if your attic is full of them, you got a problem. I mean, somewhere in your life... If your attic is full of a bunch of bulk or you're trying to run the Christian life with a heavy-duty sweatsuit on, you better unload the thing. In other words, it's a question of trimming down. My grandfather used to say to, to me, uh, Johnny, if you just do one thing right in your life, you'll be ahead of most people. So strip down and do one thing well. Just one thing. You can't do everything, so you learn to narrow your focus, right? Boy, if you study the life of Christ, it's absolutely incredible how narrow his focus was. How he got rid of all kinds of baggage that wouldn't in and of itself have been wrong to focus very clearly on what it was God had sent him to do. So we ask the question very simply then. Will it slow me down in the race? I'm trying to attain a spiritual goal. I'm trying to move in progress along a path to the glory of God. I'm trying to get my ministry where it ought to be. I'm trying to use my spiritual gift. I want to please God with all my heart. Is this thing necessary or does it retard the progress? Let's call this one excess. Let's call this one excess. So we've got expedience, that's principle number one. Edification, that's principle number two. And excess, that's principle number three. Now let me give you a fourth one. And we have to ask this question. Will it bring me into bondage? Did you get that? Will it bring me into bondage? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians again, chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Same verse. Now watch this one. Will it bring me into bondage? Here we go. Verse 12. All things are lawful. That is, all things that are not unlawful are lawful unto me. But all things are not profitable, as we saw, or to my advantage. Now listen to this one. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. 
Isn't that amazing? Do you know there are some people whose lives are controlled by things? Do you know there are people who, if they can't get a piece of paper with leaves in it, between their lips and light it on fire, they do this? Do you know that? Do you know there are people who do this until they can get that in there? This is man created in the image of God. This is man, the king of the earth. This is man, the sunum bonum of God's creation. This is man, the glorious bearer of the divine image, controlled by a pile of weeds. Ridiculous. Do you know there, I knew a guy who stumbled out of bed, he was in the ministry. He had a 35 cup coffee pot in his bathroom. And he rolled out of bed and rolled in there and guzzled about five cups of coffee because he couldn't get the day going. This is man, the king of the earth, who has to suck up a bunch of black syrup in the morning to get his act together. It's incredible. And there are some people who go home and they walk in the door and they go to the TV, bang, you know. And their life is controlled by them. And there are women who get up in the morning, and I mean when edge of night or whatever that stuff is, it's all, it all should be called from out of the pit, but they don't call it that. But anyway, when from out of the pit comes on, bong, on goes that thing, and they got to know about this lady's affair and that guy's lover and this deal and that, day after day, and if they don't have that fix every day, they're, they're not going to make it, and they're literally controlled. They are in bondage to that thing. They're in bondage to it. There are people who are in bondage to physical exercise. They're in bondage to that. If they can't get out and do their jog thing, or lift their weights, or do their little deal, they can't make it. And, of course, the serious things. Do you know that drugs in and of themselves are not evil? Did you know that? Did you know cocaine is not evil? Cocaine has never sinned. It never has. It just grows. No. Marijuana's not evil either. Poor marijuana gets bad press because people do stupid things with it. It's just a thing God created. It's a thing. It's a nice little thing. Nice little spiny leaves. Leave it alone. It's okay. It'll glorify God. No. Yes. Yes. It'll glorify God because everything he made to do that. And, you know, you can go to South, uh, my um, brother-in-law, John DeAngelis, who's an anesthesia, used to work on a thing called curare. Curare was what the natives in S South America got out of the bush, and they tipped their darts, and when they blew those blowguns, they paralyzed people with curare. Well, here it was used to, to paralyze and kill people, and he was developing it to be used as an anesthetic. This is not a moral issue. You can go to the, you can go to the hospital, and you better hope and pray that they give you drugs if you're going to have surgery, Right? Anybody like to have surgery with just a bottle of scotch? Guzzle this like the cowboy movies. You'll be all right while I remove these eight bullets. No, not me, Doc. Knock me out. Hit me with a full load of morphine. I'm gone. See, the point is that in and of itself, it is not an evil thing. But when you get to the point where you're running around jamming that stuff up your nose or you can't survive the day and running that needle into your arm, now you are controlled by that. That's a severe case of bondage. There are some people who are controlled by hamburgers and ice cream. And it's amazing. This is man, the king of the earth, made in the image of God, who's controlled by all those things. Some people have to have chocolate. Really, 
chocolate. Can you imagine that? It comes out of a tree. It's harmless stuff. It just grows. And we make it control men. You see, the point is this. You have to ask yourself the question, if I do this, will it bring me into bondage? And years ago, I learned that there are some things I have a right to do, but I don't do them because I don't want to train myself to be dependent on them. And so there are some things that I would like to do, and I just say, no, I'm not going to do that. Somebody gave me a lemon pie two days ago. I'm, I like lemon pie. God designed lemon pie for my enjoyment. He did. It's terrific stuff. It, and it's not evil. It's just lemon pie. And I came home with this big lemon pie, and Patricia says to me, are you going to eat some? With that funny smirk she gets, you know, testing my temptability. And I said, well, I'm trying to lose a little weight. Okay, she said. So she lets it sit right where everyone sees it every time they go in and out of the kitchen. So last night I came home, she said, uh, would, you, would you like some of your pie? <laughs> I said, sure. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I worked hard all day. I burned up a lot of calories. I could have a piece of pie. But, you know, somewhere along the line, you just make choices. And one of the choices that I've made is that I want to train myself not to become a victim of things, even good things, even things that I have every right to enjoy, that aren't even habit-forming. Lemon pie is not particularly habit-forming. You're not going to have withdrawals if you don't get a piece of lemon pie. But there's something to be said for cultivating a disciplined attitude, isn't there? I don't ever want to be in the place in my life where I can become a victim to something. I mean, there are guys, for example, who come to church on Sunday morning if the Rams are not playing on television. Now, you, my friend, are not going to tell me that the Ram football game is an evil thing, but I'm going to tell you your bondage is an evil thing. Your bondage is an evil thing. And there are people who won't come to church on Sunday night because they want to stay home and watch something on television, and that's something they watch may not be evil, but that bondage is... And now you're backing up into the other questions. Is this the thing I need to stimulate my spiritual growth? Or is this something that's going to slow me down in the race? Is this going to build me up? Is this going to be to my spiritual advantage? You see, the questions are all very basic. And if you give the right questions to this, the given situation, you're going to get the right answers. We don't want to do anything that's going to ultimately enslave us. I'll never forget going into a Camarillo mental institution one day going through all these gates and I've been in there several times to uh, see people they always let me back out <laughs> um, and I, I went in to see this man I had seen him about a week before and he was in uh, shackles his, he was chained in his hands and he was chained in his feet and he was a raving maniac and um, now they had him in Camarillo so I went through all these doors to get into this place and here were these weird people I don't know if you've ever been in a mental institution but it is bizarre. And about all they can do with these people is sedate them with drugs and they sit around like zombies or they lie on the floor staring at the ceiling or, or walking around in circles or doing weird things. And here was this man, college graduate, professional man, family man, wealthy man, prominent man, gifted man, skilled man, brilliant man, in a mental asylum, because he can't handle something that has total control over him. He can't handle it. He's a doctor. And when he orders drugs 
for his medical practice, he takes them himself, and he is totally controlled by those drugs. Meant to be a, an assistance in his profession, they become a curse. You know, there are some people, and I shudder to think about this, but you know there are some people who can't survive without music being on? It's true. Our whole society needs to shut off the music, and that's what God's going to do. Read Revelation 18. In the tribulation, God's going to shut off the music. You know what will happen in the world when there's no music? Oh, people will panic. They have to drown out the reality of life. There are people who can't survive without music. They, they walk around with it in their ears all the time. By the way, a recent test showed that the high, I think it's nearly 50% of freshmen coming into college now have some serious hearing impairment because of the decibel levels of rock music. Whereas 20 years ago, the article said it was 1%. It's now approaching 50%. I think it's 39% or something like that, as I think about it. But the point is, we have a society of people who are addicted to that. They're addicted to clothes. There are some people who have got a closet full of clothes, really. And they've got all you could ever want. I mean, they go through the thing and don't repeat the same deal in a month. But they see something new, right? And the... Oh, i got to have it. For some people, it is the curse of curses to go to Nordstrom. It is. You say, well, there's nothing wrong with clothes. No, there's nothing wrong with clothes. Unless you're a slave to them. Unless you're a slave to them. So you have to ask the question. Is, will this enslavement? Let's call this principle enslavement. Okay? We'll call it enslavement. So we have expedience, edification, excess, and enslavement. Now, I'm going to give you one more principle, so we'll do the other five tomorrow. We have chapel tomorrow in the gym. So, and I hope you'll be there, because uh, I don't know how your classes work tomorrow, but what I'm going to say tomorrow is equally important to what I say today. All right, number five. Here's the fifth question I want you to ask. Will it... Watch this one. Will it hypocritically cover my sin? Will it hypocritically cover my sin? 1 Peter 2.16. Now, here Peter says you're free. Listen to this. 1 Peter 2.16. Will it hypocritically cover my sin? Peter says you're free. But watch this. Do not use your freedom as a cloak over your evil. Boy, what a statement. Do not use your freedom as a cloak over your evil. You've got on this, this nice cloak and it says Christian liberty. Let me give you an illustration of this. But underneath, sin. I remember when I was back in the Bible college in the East that they, they forbid mixed bathing. And we had a lot of kids from California and the kids from California would all say, well, man, this mixed bathing rule is so stupid. It's not biblical. I mean, the Bible doesn't forbid that you, you should go swimming with girls. They had a pool there and guys could go sometimes and girls could go sometimes and you couldn't ever look in. You know, they would play... They didn't want guys to see girls who weren't fully dressed. If you played volleyball against the girls, they put a black thing over the net. You know, that kind of approach. Not literally, but you understand the approach. But anyway, they were paranoid that you should ever see a girl's knee or whatever. So, so the, everyone would say, well, this is absurd. This is absurd. We're free. We don't have that kind of thing in the Bible. And so all the kids would come home to California and say, we're going to exercise our Christian liberty and we're going to have a beach party. And so they would all go to the beach and they would enjoy their Christian liberty and they have that liberty. The problem is they would sit around the beach going, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. See, because they're all looking and lusting at what they're seeing. Now what becomes 
What they really are dealing with is a freedom that has become a cloak for their evil. Right? So I have to ask myself that question. Is this legitimate exercise of freedom or is this a cloak for my evil? I'm free to go to a movie, man. I'm free. I'm mature in Christ. You can't tell me that it's a sin for someone to say, damn. You can't say that it's a sin because the guy says hell in a movie. Why? Hell is a place. And damn is a Bible word. And if we wanted to quote Bible words, we could get ourselves in a lot of trouble because there are some Bible words that, especially in the King James Version, and, I mean, if we just read Song of Solomon in chapel, we might blow the minds of half the people. So, I mean, is there nothing wrong with There's nothing wrong with that. There's no... And, I mean, everyone knows that there is immorality in the world, and they go behind a curtain. They just kiss, and it's a short kiss because they all have AIDS, and so they don't want to pass it, you know? So what's wrong with going to them? I'm free. And so you go to a movie and that expression of your freedom is nothing more than a mask you wear over your lust. You understand? So you use your liberty as a cloak for your evil. Well, Galatians 5.13 says the same thing. Brethren, you have been called to liberty, but don't use your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Don't use your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Yes, you're free to watch television. And you say, I only watch good programs. I do flip it around a bit. Is it really an exercise of your freedom that builds you up and strengthens you? Or is it just a cloak for your evil? Let's call this principle equivocation. Equivocation. This is not a spelling test. Equivocation. That word means to lie, to equivocate, or to falsify. You're really a phony. Equivocation. So what are those five then? Expedience. Will it be to my advantage? Edification. Will it build me up? Excess. Will it slow me down in the race? Enslavement. Will it bring me into bondage? And equivocation, will it hypocritically cover my sin? I want to give you five more tomorrow. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given us principles which put the ball in our court and cause us to have to live the Christian life. Not by a lot of taboos drawn up by some people who analyze our culture. But as individual Christians who stand before a holy God, we have to answer for our behavior to you. Help us to know what is right and do it. To know what is wrong and not do it. And in the matter of those things which are not in and of themselves evil, Lord God, help us to ask the right questions with a heart desiring obedience and knowing that you will give us the right answer. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day.